And now it's time for On Our Minds. This week with immigration in the news, we're bringing you a conversation with the Dominican-born writer Gino Diaz, the MacArthur genius Pulitzer Prize-winning author of some of the most brilliant contemporary fiction about the immigrant experience. He wrote the landmark novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and here's a bit of his latest short story collection. This is how you lose her. Some nights you have new romance or dreams where you see the ex and the boy and another figure, familiar, waving at you in the distance, somewhere very close, the laugh that wasn't laughter. And finally, when you feel like you can do so without blowing into burning atoms, you open a folder you have kept hidden under your bed, the Doomsday Book. Copies of all the emails and photos from the cheating days, the ones the ex found and compiled and mailed to you a month after she ended it. Dear Junior, for your next book, probably the last time she wrote your name. You read the whole thing cover to cover. Yes, she put covers on it. You are surprised at what a coward you are. It kills you to admit it, but it is true. You are astounded by the depths of your mendacity. When you finish the book a second time, you say the truth. You did the right thing, Negra. You did the right thing. She's right. This would make a killer book, Elvis says. The two of you have been pulled over by a cop and are waiting for the officer to finish running your license. Elvis holds up one of the photos. She's Colombian, you say. He whistles. Que viva Colombia. Hand you back the book. You really should write The Cheater's Guide to Love. You think? I do. It takes a while. You see the tall girl. You go to more doctors. You celebrate Arlene's Ph.D. defense. And then one June night, you scribble the ex's name, and the half-life of love is forever. You bust out a couple more things, and then you put your head down. The next day, you look at the new pages. For once, you don't want to burn them or give up writing forever. It's a start, you say to the room. That's about it. In the months that follow, you bend to the work because it feels like hope, like grace, and because you know in your lying cheater's heart that sometimes a start is all we ever get. That's Juno Diaz reading from his short story collection, This Is How You Lose Her. Steve Paulson recently caught up with him to talk about the book and its main character. The narrator in all these stories is a guy named Junior, uh, who's now appeared in three of your books. And, and he has an interesting combination uh, of, well, he's a, kind of a, a geekish book, lever, book lover and also someone with a lot of street smarts. Um, how would you describe Junior? Yeah, I think like many of the men I grew up with, Junior um, is sort of, you know, deeply disguised. Uh, which is to say, I think many of the men I grew up with, and again, that doesn't mean every guy in the world, but just a small group of dudes, spent a lot of time passing for men. So Junior is actually this young Dominican immigrant who grew up most of his life in the U.S., central Jersey, kind of a, from a tough family in a tough neighborhood, very tough-minded and practical, super hardworking, but as you point out, highly intellectual, highly literate, obsessed with history, with books, with literature, and spends all his time trying to pass for a kind of traditional masculine, not sensitive, not intellectual dude. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like 
you were also creating your own kind of immigrant narrative. I mean, Junior, as you said, he, he grows up a poor Dominican kid. And there's a lot of pressure on him to stay true to his roots, not to get out, not to assimilate into white culture. But he also gravitates to the world of literature and high culture. And, and so the question is, can he continue to live in both those worlds or does he have to choose? Well, but I mean, I would, I would argue that there's just as much pressure for Junior to assimilate as there's pressure for anything. I think the last part of your proposition was kind of true, is that everybody wants young people to pick a side. This is not a society that encourages people to have very complex, simultaneous identities, not to have contradictory identities. We don't kind of like that. We don't sort of encourage it. We don't kind of model that for young people. And so, you know, you have uh, Junior's friends and families and neighbors and folks around him saying crazy negative things about the community, and including Junior, saying crazy negative things about the community that makes him possible. And I think what matters most about a character like this, at least for me in my mind in this context, is that this is a character who is trying to find a way to live simultaneously, to duck that sort of false choice of you have to choose one. I think anytime someone tries to limit you at the buffet to one thing, this is not a friend. This is kind of a hostile sort of proposition. And I think Junior makes an argument for that even as an immigrant, that's only making explicit who we all are, which is all of us are living in multiple worlds. And all of us are encouraged to reduce those worlds, to be reductive, to simplify, to our detriment. It's not good for us to fit ourselves into a simplistic box, to chop limbs off of our character, of our history, of who we are, in order to fit in a very tidy little box. This is a violence which I don't think is beneficial to anyone. Well, did you feel that pressure yourself, especially as you were growing up, that that you had to choose between one of these two narratives? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) again, I, I think this is not simply a matter for, you know, someone from my background. I think that this is a matter for everybody. People are always being asked to... Where's your loyalty to family? Where's your loyalty to friends? Where's your loyalty to home? Where's your loyalty to your ambition? What happens when you go to college? Oh, you left for school. You think you're so smart. Oh, you know, you stayed at home. You don't know what the real world is like. I think that there's there's always this kind of reductive impulse. It's, I think people feel very uncomfortable at times. Not all people, but some people feel very uncomfortable at times with the idea that Everyone inside themselves contains those sort of multitudes that uh, the great poet spoke of. And I guess in my mind, I saw my friends who were born in the U.S. having the same exact kind of pressure, them being asked to sort of lop parts of themselves off to fit in. And I think that this is, you know, this is something that as an artist you feel attracted to. I think it's a metaphor that uh, many immigrants undergo. I think it's something that really connects all of us together in a way. Well, we're often told that America is is the immigrant country, and there are these traditional stories. I mean, uh, uh, the the common stories either you do assimilate or you sort of stay true to your roots. And and I guess I mean, obviously, you're saying that you know that binary is a problem. I mean, that that doesn't reflect reality, and which raises the question of whether there's a new kind of immigrant literature that needs to be written? Maybe it's, maybe it's being written now, but are, are, are there lots of stories that need to be told that really have not been told yet? Well, no question. I mean, no question. Look, I mean, 
I don't know if you saw those Vita statistics and the follow-up statistics about the way that books are getting reviewed, what kind of books are getting reviewed. Even though our country is fantastically diverse, even though in our country can be found the histories and the communities of almost the entire world, it's still a country that represents itself in its literature and in its popular culture as overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male. We know this. It's something that we have to work against because, you know, having a delusional sense of ourselves is never a good idea when clearly the future is going to demand of us a lot of hard decisions and a lot of hard collective action. And so I think that without any doubt, the majority of the stories that we need to tell to bear witness to ourselves as a country haven't been told yet. So there's a whole new literature yet to be written. I mean, because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's like literature has played out. It's exhausted. You're saying no way. I deny that proposition. I deny that claim even without taking into consideration anything that's happened in the future. My, but the question I always ask the person who makes that claim is how many books did you read last year? So wait, basically, you're basing this, not you, but that person is basing this outrageous this kind of outrageous, just, I don't know how to describe it, you know, this outrageous kind of argument on almost nothing, less than 1% of 1% of the reading available in this language. And I do think that these kind of sweeping cultural generalizations, these Jeremiads, these sort of like doomish pronouncements reveal more about the symbolic place, the sort of cultural capital that we invest in the arts and just reveal more of the way that the arts have been underappreciated, the way the arts are in many ways under attack by people who are not even, are not even, I would argue, they don't even have an authoritative sense of the field they're talking about. I mean, how does someone who hasn't read 2,000 novels last year, how can they speak to me about the role of the novel? And I think that this is what ends up happening. When we talk about arts, often a lot of nonsense gets passed for authoritative information. I think you need to be out there writing more essays about this kind of thing, too. Oh, God. (laughs) In fact, Juno Diaz did write that essay, and it was recently published in The New Yorker. You can read it on our website at ttbook.org. Diaz talked with Steve Paulson about his short story collection, This Is How You Lose Her. Before we go, here's one last bit from it. Since we weren't allowed out of the house, it's too cold, Poppy said once, but really there was no reason other than that's what he wanted. We mostly sat in front of the TV or stared out at the snow those first days. Mommy cleaned everything about ten times and made us some damn elaborate lunches. We were all bored speechless. Pretty early on, Mommy decided that watching TV was beneficial. You could learn the language from it. She saw our young minds as bright, spiky sunflowers in need of light and arranged us as close to the TV as possible to maximize our exposure. We watched the news, sitcoms, cartoons, Tarzan, Flash Gordon, Johnny Quest, The Herculoids, Sesame Street. Eight, nine hours of TV a day. But it was Sesame Street that gave us our best lessons. Each word my brother and I learned, we passed between ourselves, repeating over and over. And when Mommy asked us to show her how to say it, we shook our heads and said, Don't worry about it. Just tell me, she said. And when we pronounced the word slowly, forming huge, lazy soap bubbles of sounds, she never could duplicate them. 
Her lips seemed to tug apart even the simplest vowels. That sounds horrible, I said. What do you know about English, she asked. At dinner, she'd try her English out on Papi, but he just poked at his pernil, which was not my mother's best dish. I can't understand a word you're saying, he said finally. It's best if I take care of the English. How do you expect me to learn? You don't have to learn, he said. Besides, the average woman can't learn English. It's a difficult language to master, he said, first in Spanish and then in English. Mommy didn't say another word. In the morning, as soon as Papi was out of the apartment, Mommy turned on the TV and put us in front of it.